This is Archive Atlanta, episode 42, The Neighborhood Union. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. So this week I'm talking about one of my favorite things, which is women kicking butt. The story of the Neighborhood Union and its founders is so incredible It was the first female-led black social work organization in the entire city of Atlanta. Women led the charge to educate children, find them safe places to play, schools to learn in, and ways to ensure that everyone's health and safety was a priority so that they could focus on lifting themselves and their neighborhoods out of poverty. And this is in the era of strict Victorian societal rules, racism, and sexism. Their legacy in Atlanta still lives on, both in organizations and even a physical building, which I'll tell you about later. In episode 11, I focus on the Atlanta Women's Club, which was an organization of white women that championed social justice causes. And there's a brief history of the Women's Club movement that I talked about, but I didn't really get into the African American Women's Club, so I want to give you a little bit of early history with those. Even before the end of slavery, black women were coming together to form groups that would care for their community. Philadelphia was a hotbed of African-American women's groups. It was home to one of the first, which was called the Female Benevolent Society of St. Thomas. That was 1793. Massachusetts had one in 1818, and it was black women's groups that raised money for the anti-slavery newspaper called the North Star. Black churches across the nation were established by women's groups, and in 1831, they started literary clubs as well. There's also something called faculty wives clubs, and they're pretty self-explanatory, so the wives of professors at American universities would gather together, um, kind of do similar activities, and black universities had this as well. So let's go to Atlanta and talk about the social climate of 1908. If you've not already done so, this would be a great time to go back and listen to episode 19 about the 1906 race riot. But the race riot was a life changer for black Atlantans. Residential segregation had been self-imposed after this through fear and early Jim Crow laws. The African-American community turned inward and contact with whites was only to be had when necessary. And I mean, if a mob of thousands of white men just tried to kill you and destroy your homes and businesses, I think you'd feel the same way. Because of the segregation, unlike white Atlantans, black middle class families lived next door to poor black families, so they're able to see the terrible conditions that they're suffering through. On the west side of the city, the two worst slums were called Battle Hill, and that is now actually um, the Westview neighborhood, and Beaver Slide, which is really near Clark, Atlanta. I talked about this in the African American Hospitals episode, but these neighborhoods had no running water, no indoor plumbing, typhus, dysentery, inadequate sewers, no garbage collection, and to add insult to injury, trash collection from white neighborhoods was actually dumped into theirs. There are no streetlights, no police protection, and the hiring of first African-American officers would not happen until 1948. At the same time, in 1908, the election of Governor Hoke Smith really rolled in the voter disenfranchisement. Um, Women of all races could still not vote, but black men had been voting and using that voting power. And as this right begins to be limited, the black community finds itself in dire straits with little means to counteract. Enter the ladies. There were many women involved in today's episode, um, but I want to feature one in particular. Lugenia Burns was born in 1871 in St. Louis, Missouri. 
the youngest of seven children, her family would move to Chicago in the 1880s. It was in Chicago, at the 1893 World's Fair, that she would meet John Hope. John was born in Augusta, Georgia, the son of a white merchant and a free woman of color. So his parents were in an interracial relationship in 1831, in the South, in 1831. Marrying was illegal, but they lived openly as a couple their entire lives. John would eventually make his way to Brown University, where he was a student, where he met Lugenia. The two married in 1897 and moved to Nashville, where John taught at a university. But in 1898, the couple moved to Atlanta for John's new job, which was a professor at Atlanta Baptist College. You may know that now as Morehouse, and he actually became president of Morehouse in 1906. For middle-class or upper-middle-class women of all races, if it was possible not to work, you didn't. And I I talked about this again in the Women's Club episode, but um, in one sense, this suppresses women, but then it also makes them possible to devote their time and attention to these social issues that men could, quote-unquote, not be bothered with. Lugenia was very much a woman of higher class and status. She was the first lady of Morehouse, and she had extensive previous experience with social work. The story of the neighborhood union and how it started begins with a tragedy. A neighborhood woman who lived with her husband and her father had fallen ill. Both men worked long, hard days. Nobody seemed to notice. And by the time a neighbor checked on her, she was on death's door and she would pass shortly thereafter. So the thought that this could happen to a woman living amongst neighbors and nobody noticed what was happening horrified people. On July 8, 1908, eight local women met inside Lugenia Hope's home. Now, I don't know this for sure, but she was the First Lady of Morehouse, so I'm assuming that this was inside the old president's mansion. These women are named in historical records as Lugenia, who was elected president, Mary Stokes, Sally White, Mrs. Goodwin, Dora Whitaker, elected treasurer, Mrs. Kelsey, Laura Bug, and Hattie Watson, who was elected secretary. Almost every single woman had a college degree, And many of them had connections to Spelman, Morehouse, or Atlanta University. And usually those connections are through their husbands. The first thing they did was take out a map and set a boundary for what they considered their neighborhood. And this was a really small rectangle about half a mile across, and it was bordered by specific roads on each side. So on the west, you had Ashby, which is now Joseph E. Lowry. On the north, you had Beckwith. On the east, you had Walnut. And on the south side, you had Greens Ferry Avenue. By their second meeting, they got official with articles of incorporation and a purpose statement that contained, quote, the moral, social, intellectual, and religious uplift of the community and neighborhood, end quote. Their official creed was, quote, thy neighbor as thyself, end quote. And they used the help of Morehouse College students to survey and census every single person that lived in this rectangle. The women wanted to know who you were, who made up your family, what conditions concerned you, you name it. And this is how the neighborhood union found out about the dire conditions that Atlanta's poor black citizens were living in. The need for sanitation, schools, medical, dental, things that we definitely take for granted nowadays. After the survey data was compiled, the entire city was divided into zones, with each having a neighborhood president and a chairman. Each zone would have their own duties and reports. So to give you an idea of the success of the neighborhood union, the city of Atlanta turns over all black social work to this organization. 
These were not professionally trained social workers. They were unprofessional, untrained women on a mission. But honestly, the city was also happy to let go of that responsibility. They washed their hands of it, and they would go decades without providing services to Black Atlanta. The group would focus on women and children, mostly girls, and this was by choice, but also with keeping with societal norms. The Victorian thought was that all instruction between the sexes was improper, unless you're talking about really young kids. So the Neighborhood Union helped boys and girls, believing that they were the future representatives of the race, and with learned skills, they would grow to combat racial inequities. And working with kids is also something that everybody's okay with. In in other words, this work did not set off alarms for the white power structure of Atlanta. The union focused mainly, though, on girls because they also believed that as future caretakers of the home and of children, they would exert the most influence. The list of work, accomplishments, successes, and failures of the neighborhood union would keep us here all day. And today, I want to summarize as much as I can, but hopefully still convey the legacy that continues, but also some places that you may pass in your travels and not realize they were related. Health was the main concern for the neighborhood union. They established a small neighborhood clinic within the first decade of existence, and they began an event called the Negro Health Week. They would go to each home in the neighborhood and explain good hygiene practices, how to prevent disease, again, things that seem common sense to us now. In 1910, a wave of tuberculosis hits the city, and a mass panic ensues. Uh, Not going to get into this too much right now, but TB is very contagious, and it does not discriminate. So white Atlanta was blaming the disease on African-American domestic workers. And city officials actually raided the homes of these black women. And again, this can be its own episode. I won't go down the rabbit hole too far. But it was a neighborhood union that showed the white community and the leaders of Atlanta, hey, we're living in filth over here. You're dumping trash. We have no plumbing, no sewers. You know, this is the problem. The women, they were able to use the fear that the city had to assist their neighborhoods by providing health and sanitation services. So they took that um, fear of disease and they're like, oh, well, hey, if you want to prevent this, we need these things. That same fear of the spread of tuberculosis would form an alliance with the White Atlanta Anti-Tuberculosis Association, which was one of the first times you had interracial cooperation. Also in this first decade, they provided classes for adults, established after-school programs, boys and girls clubs, they held the first carnival for black children, they established a neighborhood watch, and they secured the first black juvenile probation officer. And they created the very first playground for black children. It was actually carved out of land given by Morehouse, um, where Eugenia's husband was president, so I like to imagine what the dinner conversations were leading up to that one. Education was also one of their top causes. In 1913, they created the Women's Social Improvement Committee, which was a group of 100 of the most influential black women in Atlanta. They spent six months inspecting Atlanta's 12 schools for black children and reported their findings. All were overcrowded and underfunded. And I'm working on an episode about Atlanta's public education, but it was not a pretty picture for black children. School ended in 7th or 8th grade, unlike white school, which went through the 12th grade. The group visited about 40 homes in the neighborhoods, and they found 8 children not enrolled because they didn't have appropriate clothing. 
And again, not to get into the weeds too much, um, but in this time, to enroll a child in school, you needed to pay a tax, have them vaccinated, and have proper clothes. And this was just not possible for poor families. 50% of black kids in the city did not attend school. Now, this Women's Social Improvement Committee disbanded after only a year, but the neighborhood union continued the fight. They petitioned the Board of Education for two new schools, and they were able to get a school built in South Atlanta, um, which they had none there. But the first middle and high school for black children were not built until after 1921. It's a quick summary, but the work of the neighborhood union ensured the successful passing of this 1921 bond, um, and so some of that money went in 1923 to build Booker T. Washington High School, which is still around, and also David T. Howard Middle School, which is also still around and in the midst of renovation. By the 1920s, organizations like the National Urban League were doing social work in Atlanta, so it was no longer just the neighborhood union In that same decade, the Neighborhood Union founded the Atlanta School of Social Work. You kind of had the the official start of black social work in Atlanta starts in the 1920s. The 1930s would bring the Great Depression, which impacted everyone all over the country, but government aid was primarily for whites in the South. In Atlanta, we had something called the Family Welfare Society. It was a city-run relief agency but they helped white families first. And if something was left over, it would go to black neighborhoods. In 1931, one quarter of black Atlantans were unemployed. And by 1932, half. So what did the neighborhood union do? What they always did, they took it upon themselves to create the solution. The Westside Unemployment Relief Committee was an organization run, financed, and organized by black leaders of Atlanta, mostly from the neighborhood union. It was the most substantial relief program in the West End, and it provided aid, employment assistance, food, and fuel for those trying to survive the Depression. So let's talk legacy. In 2019 Atlanta, you can still see Washington Park, which the Neighborhood Union helped to establish. You can pass both David T. Howard Middle and Booker T. Washington High. The Atlanta School of Social Work still exists, although through a different name. And then you have the Neighborhood Union Health Center. And I saved this for last because I fell in love with this building the first time I passed it several years ago. It sits on the same street as the adult home of Dr. King, the homes of Maynard Jackson and Julian Bond, and it's mid-century, so you know I noticed it. In 1944, this land um, had the stately home of a white family. And in the 1940s, it was donated and converted into a clinic, health center um, that the neighborhood union used. It was initially for the treatment of venereal diseases. So this clinic was so successful um, and so popular that it really needed to expand. By the 1950s, it's kind of a longer story, um, but they decided to ask the help of the city of Atlanta and Fulton County to create a larger clinic or health center. Now what's interesting is that the women of the neighborhood union were not initially directly given credit because in keeping with the times and in keeping with sort of the patriarchy of the time, they asked their husbands or other prominent men in the community to request this health center. The initial request for the building comes from very prominent black men in the city. 
What the neighborhood union did, though, is they chose to donate this old house and that land to combine it to give land for this new neighborhood union health center. So in 1955, the Westside Health Center was open, and it would serve 50,000 Atlantans that lived around it. Now, it was only called that for one year. By 1956, it was then named the Neighborhood Union Health Center. I'm guessing finally to honor the organization and the women that made it a reality. The crazy thing, guys, is that not only does this building still exist in its mid-century glory, but it's still a neighborhood health center. The address is 168 Sunset Avenue. So if you haven't been down Sunset, I mean, there's so many other things to see. You should be ashamed of yourself. Lugenia Hope was president of the Neighborhood Union until its 27th anniversary. Aside from her work there, though, she would work for the YMCA. She actually was vice president of the NAACP. I mean, she would continue to be involved in these organizations until she moved out of the state of Georgia in 1937. She would pass away just 10 years later but her remains were brought back to the city where she did so much. On the campus of Morehouse, you will find the grave of John Hope, its first African-American president. And what you may not know is that the ashes of his wife, Lugenia, were sprinkled around it so they could be together in eternity. So that, my friends, is the story of the Neighborhood Union, the story of minority women doing amazing things in a time where they were limited by their sex and their race. The union laid the groundwork for the grassroots organizing efforts of the civil rights movement. It's been called the prototype for self-help and service organizations around the country. It dissolved in the 1970s, but you can now keep a story alive by sharing what you've learned with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Thank you all for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. A huge thank you to my latest patrons, Beth, Dijon, Natalie, and Tori. Remember, starting in August, I am releasing two mini-episodes per month just for my Patreon contributors. The minimum contribution is $1 a month. So if two episodes for $1, this is the deal of the century. If you'd like to check that out, it's patreon.com forward slash archiveatlanta. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.